Hello and welcome back to Europe Listens. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jana Pulierin, head of ECFR's Berlin office. And I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. When we think of Europe's role and responsibilities here at ECFR, we tend to think about human rights, climate action, war and peace, security and democracy in terrestrial terms. But today we are heading to outer space. As Russia's war against Ukraine further exposes the necessities and vulnerabilities of satellite technology, we want to take a closer look at what's going on in Earth's orbit. The fact is that space has become increasingly fraught and contested. Between antagonistic geopolitics, military and civilian reliance on space technology and growing competition for space access, things are getting crowded and dangerous. In March, in response to increasing risks, the European Union set out its first ever space strategy for security and defense. The strategy aims to protect assets, reduce threats and promote responsible behaviors with calls for a single market moment in space and a new European space law. How might this law make space safer and more equitable? What is the role of the private sector in space? And what about the alarming quantity of debris or space junk that all human activity in space leaves floating around Earth? To explore these and other big space questions, we are thrilled to welcome Rovimbo Samanga, an attorney and legal scholar specialized in space law and policy. Born in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, Rovimbo is a space policy analyst at Access Partnership, a global tech advisory firm. She also serves as ambassador for the Milo Space Science Institute, based out of Arizona State University. As the national point of contact for Zimbabwe in the Space Generation Advisory Council, Rovimbo worked closely with the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. For her leadership and activism on outer space issues, she was named Mandela Rhodes Scholar and Ban Ki-moon Global Citizen Scholar and received various awards, including from the International Astronautical Federation. Rovimbo, welcome to Europe Listens. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Rovimbo, it's great to have you on the show. Let's begin with the huge increase in outer space activity. When did this begin and how busy is space today? Well, I think there's a lot of contention surrounding, first of all, the first human-made object in outer space. Some would contend that it was the M1 18014, which was a German test rocket in 1944, and yet others still would say that it was the German-made rocket that launched from Cape Canaveral, the U.S. bumper WAC, which was launched in 1949. But we know the first space object was the Soviet Union's Sputnik 1 in 1957, and from there, we've seen something of a Cold War of sorts, a race between first two regimes in outer space, and now more and more the commercialization of outer space. I'd like to start by giving um, an indication of the current status of the industry. And reports indicate that the global space sector is now worth 
469 billion United States dollars and about 77% of that value is based on the commercial market. We can really see the upgrowth of the commercial market from around 2015 especially where there was a commercialization of earth observation services, telecommunications and even the non-satellite industry. But if I were to give an opinion, I would personally opine that the boom actually took place during the COVID-19 pandemic with the advancements, especially in human space flight. And uh, the Harvard Business Review also opines it was somewhere in the realm of 2021 and perhaps the five-year period before then. But we must remember that space for Earth, that is um, benefits derived from space for Earth, we're developing really from the 2000s onwards, and now we're looking forward to space for space boom, which is uh, the use for the creation of a space economy, services produced in space for use in space, uh, not only just services, but products as well. And maybe just starting from the basics, who do you think are currently the main stakeholders in space? Historically speaking, I would say states have held the influence as major stakeholders. And this also goes back to the regulations where the Outer Space Treaty, which is the main framework, proposes in Article 6 that states are to create national laws in order to regulate the activities of other stakeholders. But with the statistics I just gave before, it's clear to see that industry is beginning to exert influence And they're beginning to do so in a way that exhibits almost state-like powers. That is what we call tech diplomacy. But in recognizing states and industry, we mustn't also forget the non-governmental organizations which play a role in creating dialogue between these multilateral institutions, these companies, and the community to whom outer space also belongs. So to give a hierarchy, states are in fact the major stakeholders. From them, laws and regulations come into being to actualize the activities of industry, of non-governmental organizations, and the inspiration and hopes of the communities as well. And then we have there, perhaps not at the bottom of the hierarchy, but as an all-encompassing figure, are the multilateral organizations that have the difficult role of coordinating all the different multi-stakeholder interests. As we mentioned in the introduction, the EU recently issued its first space strategy for security and defense. What do you see as the most imminent risks of this increasingly crowded space? I believe the most immediate risk would be space traffic management, most exemplified in the risk of the Kessler syndrome, wherein the proliferation of space objects would multiply far greater than we are able to contain any catastrophe. So, for instance, if one satellite or space object were to collide with another, or if a space debris were to do so with another object, it would cause a cascading effect that would inevitably cause a blanket of debris around the Earth's orbit or atmosphere. And this would then reduce access to space, not only for all stakeholders, but especially for developing and underserved regions that might not have already had access to this orbital resource. Not only looking at what can happen in space, we can also look at the catastrophe of an undermined Earth sustainability. We rely on space for a number of critical services, and as well, the space debris 
should it become an issue, can also pose a risk to life here on Earth if it has an uncontrolled re-entry into populated areas, undermining people and resources. I'd say lastly as well, the proliferation of cyber attacks or space as a military domain could be an increased risk, especially as we see conversations of national security coming up in geopolitical discourse. As Europe raises space strategy and possibly legislation up the agenda, are you able to give us an overview of developments and priorities in the African space ecosystem specifically? Certainly. I would say that in the African space industry, the dominant market still seems to be that of Earth observation, Earth observation services, particularly for resource management. And resource management could entail a number of things, agriculture and water resources come into mind, but also the management of people. And we know that there is a lot of calls for Earth observation for monitoring of humanitarian crises within the region could become a useful case point for Africa as well. We're also seeing the rise of critical investments in Africa, whereby there is a lot of movement of resources towards creating infrastructure and transferring the tech and know-how towards that infrastructure development. There's talks of a spaceport uh, through a bilateral investment treaty in Djibouti. And of course, Africa is geographically advantageous in this regard. There are 13 countries all over the world that are located along the equator, and Africa has the majority of those countries, which provide a good launch platform in terms of velocity uh, for these kinds of activities. So we are looking towards that as well. There must also be the distinction between the downstream and the upstream market. Downstream, of course, being the data that we derive from space being turned into actionable information, and then upstream as the development or manufacturing of the actual components that derive this data or lead us towards that data, such as rockets and satellite components, etc. So we are seeing the growth also of the upstream capabilities where Africa can also become a manufacturing hub. And there are talks and developments for manufacturing assembly, integration and testing facilities, of which Egypt just became the latest country to do so, having signed a partnership with China to develop such facilities with existing facilities in South Africa and Ethiopia as well. Can I uh, quickly address the question of equity? Because if space is global commons, I mean, there is an obvious contradiction in what is, at least currently, a limited number of national and commercial stakeholders. So, Rovimbo, what do you think? How might we achieve more equity in space? And what role do you see for multilateral bodies here? I think that equity can be best achieved through mutual reciprocity as a broad term. And mutual reciprocity will come through active international cooperation. It's important to understand that space is a global commons and to make it a truly global commons, there must be some coming together on shared interests and benefits sharing. Especially for marginalized groups and developing countries, I think there are four core themes that need to be addressed at the multilateral level, which is enabling developing countries. That's the first one. And that is essentially allowing them to also climb up the ladder of development through international cooperation where capacity building can be effective. 
The second point would be the equitable and limited allocation of orbital slots for satellites, knowing that they are a finite resource and that they are intrinsically tied to SDG development, especially for underdeveloped regions. There needs to be a more efficient way of ensuring that when a country has the capabilities to use a resource, they will find that resource still intact. There also needs to be economic and environmental considerations, that is impact assessments as to how valuable certain activities are to continued peace and harmony, not only in space, but in Earth as well. These stem to conversations on the viability of certain exercises. We know that there are regions in the world that might not value excursions to the moon, that might not value excursions to Mars, or that might want to have voices as well, despite not having the technical capabilities to contribute. So pinning economics and environmental aspects together to understand what the rationale of space missions are and placing each country or company within that rationale is an important exercise. Fourthly, I think that we need to look at technology and policy transfer. That is creating an environment where there can be information sharing and information gathering so as to develop best practices towards harmonization of standards in space. spoke earlier about private sector actors occupying increasing space in outer space. I believe that by a recent count, more than a third of all satellites in operation belong to SpaceX. What are the implications of this? The obvious implications, of course, are that there will be the development of industry-led norms. Industry-led norms are both a good and bad development, in my opinion, Good in the sense that it is reflective of the current movement or direction that the industry is taking. Bad, or at least there's some skepticism to the extent that the prevailing regulation or treaty law encourages states to be the drivers of industry development by providing an enabling environment. So while we do have SpaceX leading what is innovative, We can also see that there is market competition and perhaps a little bit of hampering of local development to the extent that these private companies might exert unfair or undue influence on the market or in terms of the bilateral investment treaties that they will be engaging in, especially in underserved regions. That said, this is why the role of multilateral organizations is once again amplified as sort of playing the role of watchdog and mediator to ensure that such expansion is done with principles of equity in mind, giving rise to the fact, or at least acknowledging the fact, that when the laws that currently govern our ecosystem were made, they may not have envisioned the rapid developments we are seeing now. But at the same time, allowing for these laws to be developed might take too long and development might actually outpace the rate at which we are able to come up with binding and enforceable regulations. Are there particular implications of this potential monopoly for marginalized groups and developing states because they don't have the capacity to participate in the market? I believe there is 
some fair implications on the negative side for the monopoly of certain industries. This goes back again to hampering of the local development initiatives and also to an undermining of market forces that already exist or are developing in that sense. Looking at especially emerging markets such as Africa, which are yet to develop best practices, enabling business environments, and also well-established and all-encompassing frameworks, it can often be destabilizing to have what we call reactive policy making, which reacts to industry developments rather than anticipate industry development. What we would expect from marginalized groups or developing states is an opportunity to practice what is known as anticipatory diplomacy, which is to have enough time to reasonably foresee what our market entails, what our market would want to develop into, and from there develop our needs without the interference of international market forces. To that end, though, it is, or it cannot be understated, the impact that international cooperation, international investment, and even venture capital funding from outside of Africa has had a role and an impact in taking the industry to where it is today. It is well acknowledged that a lot of the investment that has been made in the industry is thanks in part to investment treaties between states. All of the venture capital funding so far for space startups has been from outside of Africa as well. So there is that recognition, and I'd like to tie it back to the concept of mutual reciprocity, which is whilst in exercising or opening up this new market, there must also be fair return on investment to the local community via development and technology and policy transfer. Moving on now to the issue of so-called space junk. There are growing calls to recognize this problem and remove excess debris from space. How might this cleanup effort work in practice? I believe there are two methods. Firstly, would be the technical and secondly, policy. But first, to deal with the technical, I would propose, and as is industry knowledge, that active debris removal and active debris mitigation are core themes at the moment. Debris removal, of course, looking at the actual remediation or returning of space objects or space debris after the end of life. And then debris mitigation is reducing the likelihood that there could be proliferation or the creation of space debris. So for instance, using softwares to ensure that there are no collisions, etc. We see a lot of different initiatives, whether that be space tugs that will actively latch on to objects and return them to Earth, or we see propulsion mechanisms that are more increasingly being built into satellites in order to ensure that they can make their way either to the graveyard orbit to die or back to Earth to disintegrate in the atmosphere. All of this requires both policies and laws. And just to make the distinction between policies and laws, policies are instructions or guidelines giving recommendations to the ecosystem on what to expect and what is expected of them. And from this, an impact assessment can be done to determine whether policies can then be translated into binding laws which have um, consequences behind them. Another challenge we do see in the outer space regulatory framework is that of enforcement, which is even if you do break 
policy or laws what exactly is your consequence and that is something that has to be addressed at the multilateral level is there a real consequence to this aside from the broader existential crisis what can we do what is a small win to ensuring sustainability so to that end policies and laws around active debris removal and mitigation would be the best move on a more optimistic note uh, moving from space debris maybe to the sustainable development goals that you already mentioned earlier in passing, drawing on your own research into geospatial systems, do you see any opportunities for space technology to support the SDGs? I certainly do. I speak from the top of my head here when I say that satellites can be used to monitor and evaluate the progress towards the achievement of 13, I think, out of the 17 SDGs. I'll give a couple of examples, um, for example, carbon emission satellites are currently being used as a transparency index for monitoring greenhouse gas emissions. I also alluded to the monitoring of resources in Africa, where especially the monitoring of illegal activity, say, for instance, in mining can also be tracked through satellite Earth observation. And I think for the broader resource management as well, I'd also like to stretch uh, everyone's thinking a little bit by adducing or bringing to mind the fact that data as we know it is essential to the future knowledge economy. Access to data is important and access to the internet can almost be considered a human right now. And we know that satellites with their huge and immense processing power and their global coverage will be very instrumental towards this. So to the extent that we have affiliated industries relying on satellites for the transmission of healthcare data, for um, educational data as well, etc., this will all feed into the broader fulfillment of SDGs. I'd like to look a bit ahead now, Rovimbo. What would you consider the most important considerations for an EU space law or initiatives like the Artemis Accords? Thank you. I'd like to draw on my support and partnership with the Milo Space Science Institute, who have a very nice, I think, tripartite theory behind effective industry development. And the first one, of course, is research. And it goes without saying that the EU is a research hub, especially partnering in the international domain for space exploration that needs no further discussion. I would also move on to workforce development, which has actually been incorporated into the year 2024 strategy, I believe, for the EU. And that is the continuous skilling, reskilling and upskilling of individuals to ensure that they are ready to take on the challenges of this rapidly developing industry. And then lastly, noting how important the industry is, we need entrepreneurship, we need an environment that supports entrepreneurship, but we also need an environment that encourages entrepreneurs to give back to the local community. And that's an important factor of space sustainability. We often think sustainability is only insofar as ensuring activities continue, but we, we need to remember why these activities need to continue, which is to continue to benefit the end user and give them the best quality and even quantity as possible in terms of data, etc. You spoke about how to set the conditions on Earth to make the most of our access to space. What can we do to promote responsible behaviors in space? Certainly, I think 
Shaping responsible behaviors in space starts at the research level. But even before the research level, I think it starts at the awareness raising level. I like to use this example quite often on the topic of climate change, which I think could have been taken more seriously and uptaken more widely around the world had we not missed the essential steps of ensuring that there is political will and you ensure political will by sensitizing people on the issue. That is giving them as much information as possible, not only to understand, but maybe to contribute and have that essential dialogue. So I think awareness raising is important for the most part so that all stakeholders can remain on board. Research and development is another important aspect. From research and development, we then have technology development. And from technology development, we can then go into innovation. And I'd like to give an example of each of these different levels or areas and highlight how important it is to have all stakeholder buy-in. When it comes to awareness raising, remember that the Apollo missions had a lot of support, but they sort of weaned off. This was due to a lack of political will, a lack of understanding by the citizens on why continued space missions are important. So we want to avoid that by ensuring that everyone all around the world can understand what is happening and why it is of benefit. And it is not just a rocket to the moon. If you've used the internet, if you've withdrawn money from an ATM, if you've watched TV, is some form of space data being used. Responsible behavior can also be factored into research and development by having more inclusive and diverse voices. We often think that if a stakeholder is not able to contribute through technology that they have nothing to offer. But I beg to differ, there are a lot of research hubs all around the world that would benefit from, say, indigenous knowledge practices for resource management. Or in the case of Africa, mining governance can serve as a case study for, let's say, utilization of resources on the moon. If we move to technology, you can have a minimum viable contribution to any kind of space mission, for instance, Developing a software is something commonplace in the tech industry. They need softwares for certain satellites. They need the integration of small bespoke antennas into space components, etc. This can be effected anywhere in the world that already has that capabilities of which there would be many use cases for that. And then lastly, innovation. You can then start to think beyond extraplanetary exploration, etc. And once we have everyone operating on an equal playing field, it makes that experience much more legitimate that everyone understands and feels a part of it. On this issue of including all stakeholders on a level playing field, here at Europe Listens, we hope to build awareness around opportunities and obstacles for multilateral cooperation. And a key part of the EU space strategy is indeed to foster stronger transnational dialogues and partnerships for responsible space behavior. In your opinion, Ravimbo, what should the EU keep in mind as it is looking to strengthen its relations with African countries? I'd like to start with a little bit of factual knowledge and give a current status of the European space industry in terms of investment and cooperation so far. And according to the Seraphim Space Index in their Q1 2023 report, They reported that investment in space tech 
first of all, in general, was up by 75% with the highest number of deals recorded so far. So that's quite remarkable. Even more interesting is that for the first time, European investment surpassed the US and the UK and actually accounted for a quarter of all space tech deals in Europe, which is quite impressive. An emphasis is already being made in establishing capacity for launch, for constellations, and for communications, which I think are all viable uh, international cooperative points for Africa, looking at launch as a geographically advantageous region, constellations for communications, which will help Africa's agenda towards digital economy and sovereignty, and finally, I think looking at emerging technologies such as robotics and artificial intelligence, Africa certainly needs a strong partner to push us not only into the fourth industrial age, but into this accelerated and sometimes complex industrial age as well. I know that the EU has a very robust digital transformation strategy, which they hope to actually help peripheral regions, regions around the EU, strengthen their digital networks, knowing that investment and opportunities can only be strengthened when your partners are also strong. And Africa is already a huge cooperative partner with Europe in this endeavor. And if I'm not mistaken, a huge investment has already been made in this regard. So to that extent, I think Europe, Africa-Europe cooperation is already on a good track. There was recently in 2021, I believe, the Africa-Europe Conference on Earth Observation another cooperation initiative that is doing very well since then 30 million euros had been invested at the time for earth observation and a further 100 million euros was dedicated this year actually to furthering that development so it's important that we note there is already existing developments and we look forward to seeing what more can develop in what i would say is the more niche areas of law uh, such as the Artemis Accords. To this end, Africa is yet to determine a clear strategy for extraplanetary exploration or lunar exploration. But having this first node of development supported is a very good step. Wow. Thank you very much, Rovimbo, for sharing your huge, impressive knowledge with us and all these insights. We greatly appreciated it. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Rovimbo. Europe Listens is brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations and supported by Stiftung Mercator. Our producer is Eliza Epperley. Project Coordination by Angela Mera. Sound Design and Editing by Benjamin Nash. Thank you.